Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. All right, welcome to another edition of Live Arts Market Pulse. This time we are recording on October 3rd, just after the New York midseason sales. I thought we'd take a few minutes to go over the highlights of the sales, but really to drill down into the markets that we see both advancing, some of the ones that are sort of staying flat or strong, and then maybe at the end we can look at some of the uh, areas of weakness. A lot of people have been looking forward to these sales because they are an indicator of the fall season. And unless you've been um, asleep for the last three or four months, you know that a lot has changed in the global economy. And therefore, one presumes eventually there will be changes in the art market. Uh, Just to give you some overall numbers before I bring in George, Arena, and Sophie, I wanted to give people a chance to see you know, the volume of uh, sales was $69 million across the three houses. Uh, that's 605 different works that sold out of 715 that were offered. So that's a sell-through rate of about 85%, which, you know, for the kinds of sales we're talking about is certainly still quite strong and shows there's plenty of demand in the art market. The hammer ratio, which we calculate as the aggregate low estimate for all the works offered, and then the aggregate hammer prices just for the works that sold, so there's an element of the unsold works in that hammer ratio, the hammer ratio was 1.06. And as a number, that sort of suggests the market's a pretty much even match between buyers and sellers, not a lot of strong bidding and not a sense of people really aggressively trying to buy work, but not yet a market that's beginning to uh, slip or show real weakness where there's sellers but not a lot of buyers around. So with that in mind, let me bring in uh, George, Sophie, and Arena. Hi, guys. It's good to see you or hear from you. Hey, Marian. Hi, Marian. Thanks for having us. We're going to hear from you too, Arena. (laughs) I said hello. Great. So uh, let's just start with some of the things that looked positive. I tried to make a list of all of the artists with basically either a significant work or two or preferably three or more works that were sold that were very much in positive territory. Um, And if I run down that list, it kind of starts with um, uh, an artist like Amy Silman, and I know, George, you've got a few things to say about her market. So I thought we could start there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Amy Silman coming on the heels of the Venice Biennale. The last major show was a year ago in New York with Gladstone, which featured works on paper and paintings. Um, <clears throat> we haven't seen historically very much Silman on the market. And this time around, we had three works on paper, two from the same collection at Sotheby's and one work over at Christie's. The Christie's one smaller earlier. The earlier work, Less Desirable, actually failed to sell on the day. Um, Sotheby's had the two larger works and from a really nice collection. And both of those achieved really breakout prices. And I set, think set a new precedent for what a work on paper by the artist can go for. 
making um, mid 40s and low 50s respectively. And funnily enough, the green one, which I think is the lesser, like the lesser color in most collector's eyes, sold for more on the day. So I think they they staged those two correct in the correct order um, to get the maximum bidding out of them. Um, you know, I think I think it's interesting that you know quality will quality will follow medium. And I think talking to a friend of mine who's a big Silman collector today about it, you know, it's, these these should in time become rarer and rarer. You know, work on paper it, it, for Silman is very much a big part of her practice. She says that she's a draw, you know, a drawer first and a uh, a painter second, or doesn't even really see herself as a painter. Painter. So the medium is something that if, if you're a paintings collector or work from paper collector that you can really get behind, it can be a benchmark in a collection. So this was, this was really positive to see because the sales of Amy Silman work on paper prior to this were like low, sort of low five figures, high four figures. So this was really a break, breakout pricing for something that's really good. I think, you know, the fact that a work on paper can sell for the same price that a small painting that was sold to benefit BAM Back in March 2020, on the eve of the pandemic, that made like 55. You know, that felt like a little bit of a false start <clears throat> for an artist whose career should be really going up market-wise. And to see these come, you know, two years later, super nice. Is that what our market needs? So, you know, a big painting that really makes people notice? Yeah, I think we've had we had some breakout pricing like in 2019 or so, where we had a big painting make 800,000. There was one couple in the AIM sales that did really well. And then some not so great examples came back. And I think the Soma market's one where primary and privately, these things trade for a much different number than what you generally see at auction. And I think that's almost in part because the really great ones are so well buried that we don't see so many great works come out at auction. These two works on paper, I understand, came from a consignment that also included the great little Stephen Perino at Sotheby's, the two Christopher Wool works on paper, and a host of other really nice things that they managed to put in that sale. And I think, again, like we talked about the Willem de Kooning in the last podcast, this was kind of the perfect place to put a really A-plus works on paper collection on sale because it's not going to get buried behind canvas examples. So these things really got their placement in the previews. They looked nice in the catalogs, albeit online. Um, you know, they, they got the, the treatment they deserve for the medium that they are. Yeah. It's worth pointing out that the de Kooning's in this whole cycle, all did very well. I mean, led primarily by the one uh, at Sotheby's, which you know got a, uh, a I guess the pri- price it would have gotten privately, um, uh, you know, around four million dollars, but it was bid up there in a in a public way. Yeah, that was a great result, and I'll let everybody else jump in on it. You know, I think that painting achieved what it was supposed to get, the $4.1 million being what you'd expect to see it in a dealer's gallery or maybe on art fair booth somewhere near you. Um, it definitely had some condition questions around it, which is probably why putting the low, the lower estimate on it, you know, is lined. Yeah, that's why it's a $4 million painting, not a um, $10 million painting or an $8 million pa- 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 painting, but still it wasn't a $1.8 million painting. But exactly. But that's the psychology of the extra bid, right? You come in and you think, I'm going to get it for one eight. You push it to mid twos. Somebody else carries it in the threes. And the person who can't let it go buys it in the force. It's perfect. Yeah. It was like really, really well done. You know, that and I think the um, the Hawaiian music, Ed Ruscha, the egg on silk picture, which had some unfortunate lifetime medium issues at the corners of it because of how it had been framed under plexi. Great thing, specific kind of 
text to it, but really, you know, seminal part of Rouchet's career, they still got a good price for it in the end. You know, they got a few bids on it. Not, not the same as she gets angry at him, different provenance, harder text, but still, you know, given everything that was going on with that picture, I thought, again, for a high value lot in September, they did well. So Arena and Sophie, I wanted to get you in. I know everyone's excited about Danielle Orchard across the board, and it certainly seems that um, these four works that were uh, offered all sold well. Is there a lot going on behind the scenes, I mean, uh, privately, or, or is it all sort of waiting for these numbers to come out? I think um, it's mostly waiting for the numbers to come out, but there is enough inventory to satisfy the demand right now. Um, it's just more of a pricing issue because collectors want to get a really great you know, deal on those paintings because they're so attracted to them. But I would say um, like the Phillips sale, um, you know, the female headliners overall, like Anna Benaroya, Amanda Baldwin, Orchard, and Agrella, they showed some really great numbers. And sometimes on the private end, uh, the numbers were even higher. And now there is a bit of a market correction for those. Um, names, um, if there was, um, you know, a higher asking price. Well, on Orchard, is is the the chance of getting a deal over? I mean, has this confirmed the prices on the private market? I believe so. Yes. Um, I mean, again, collectors they know where the market stands, and they wouldn't ask for more than um, you know the demand is high. But definitely, I believe there is enough inventory to satisfy it. And we also saw a couple of Louise Bonet works sell their works on paper, but they sold well. Is that just they were, you know, priced, uh, uh, estimated aggressively, or is that a, a sense that there's still a lot of demand in her market? No one's got a Louise Bonet opinion. I, I would have said I would have said more availability and quality of work out there. You know, they're yeah. just these have been slow to get out onto the market. They're pretty well contained between the three galleries that have historically had her work, Hetzler, Nino Meyer, and Gagosian. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where the examples that have come out so far have mostly almost all been, save one picture, I think works on paper. So it's just, you know, more works on paper. The quality kind of shook out between the three that were offered. Um, I think Christie's had the best one by far, um, and they got the best results in the end at 52,000. Um, and the other two trailed kind of qu- quickly behind that. You know, I think, you know, increasingly Bonet is probably a name that people search for, but it might be entering that territory of so hard to get that people start looking at other things too, until the good examples come out. So we're probably in a market where, you know, the A, the A works depending on their medium, we'll get the A pricing probably past the kind of initial pricing that we saw back in May, but the good things will still attract pricing. It might be harder for the B pieces that we saw early on get sold to get the prices that they got before. And and the same with Louis. She's also leading the Hong Kong sale at Sotheby's on Friday um, with another work on paper. She's lot number one. So seems like the work on papers are definitely, you know, coming out, but not so much on the, on the paintings. Because people want to hold on to the paintings or because they're sort of waiting for this market to heat up? I would say probably waiting for it to heat up. Like, you know, the demand, the paper, the paperwork should probably, the buy-in was so much lower that if some, you know, you paid 5,000 bucks for this and you're out, it's going to be 30 to 50 grand. It's probably more enticing than if your buy-in was 30 to 50 grand on a painting and the and there's an unknown quantity of what you're going to get out of it, you know, and if that's, you know, 
that's only 80 to 100,000, you know, the holding costs might not might not warrant the exposure and the burning of bridges on the primary market. Yeah. Well, speaking of a, a market that you don't have to worry about burning bridges, the Lynn Drexler freight train uh, continues on uh, a pace. We saw strong results, certainly for the um, bigger uh, abstract works from around 60 and even the later one from 66. I, I thought we would have seen better prices for the um, vase of flowers and the small still life because both of those paintings looked you know, fantastic in person. They, they certainly sold well. They just didn't sell as sort of breakouts from uh, their pricing. Uh, is there, you know, anything to sort of say about this m market except that it just, you know, keeps moving on? I think it just keeps moving on. I mean, also, I think like those those two smaller works that, you know, didn't have like a gangbusters kind of reaction. I think there's probably still a little bit of waiting around that, there's enough inventory coming to market that is, you know, of top quality that you might as well, if you're looking for something, give it, just wait a moment, things are going to crop up. People are going to realize this market's heating up still and, and more will come, come up. So, you know, those two, those two lots did well, but they're definitely not the top quality pieces. Is everything going to go to auction right now, just because no one knows what the prices are or are there private sales taking place? There's still private sales taking place and the private sales that we've seen have matched up pretty nicely to what we saw happen at the auctions, um, both between the smaller pieces in May and what just occurred now, um, you know, Violet Sunlight and the Untitled 1966 picture being the two kind of perfect comps in there for what we've been handling. Um, and to, to Sophie's point too, I think, you know, I don't know that the market's educated enough on the kind of mid to late 80s stuff, right? Both the still life and the fall produce, which had a bit of that landscape vibe to it and the kind of undergrowth around the pumpkin, you know, that kind of felt like a more 60s picture. But I don't know what, that the market knows what to do with that material yet. I don't think we've done exploring the kind of, I've, I, you know, in a way, we're kind of at that beveled edge painting moment in the Sam Gilliam market from a few years ago. Like that's that's the stuff that's going to make make the money right now. And everything else, as we go further downstream, will kind of slot in as people really assess what what it is that she's all about and which decades are really important. You know, we hear things like find anything before 1970. And some people who are like, I will go on anything up to 66, right? And sort of these people are building these kind of like matrices around what it is that they want, right? And as and then they're kind of doing it as, as they go and as they learn what she's about. So I think as that becomes more refined and defined, then we will then we'll understand what, what the market really is. But it's a bit like a pyramid. The the peak at sort of 59, 61 is, you know, it's pretty high at a million and a half. It may go go higher, but we're now getting the sides a little bit further, you know, uh, later in, in her career, we're getting at least, you know, mm -hmm. higher five-figure, low six-figure pr prices or mid-six-figure yeah. prices for some of the late 60s works and, and, and so on. Um, I hesitate to bring Mary Weatherford into this because it's really just one uh, painting and a much smaller work, but you know, the, the, everything performed, uh, quite well, but I don't get the sense that her market is, you know, th there's much that is available on it, uh, to come to auction, uh, or, or is that just, it, it hasn't sort of happened. I, I think that the pricing on the primary is high again, right? So I think we had the Mary Weatherford kind of breakout moment when there was the gallery transition from Kordansky to Kogosian and, 
all that from a few years ago. There are definitely a few people who are hunting for these things. Um, I think the paintings themselves aesthetically become quite subjective. Maybe, you know, I don't think we can date stratify it the way we just did on Drexler, but you know, all we've got is kind of the non-neon and the neon era for Weatherford. Um, but beyond that, it's the colors of the neons themselves, the color of the painting behind the neon. You know, someone can say that one's too mauve or that one's too muddy or this one's too yellow. You know, it, it's, it, there's a lot of subjectivity in that, in her, in her work. And I think that's what's that plus com complicated install nature of them is probably what holds that back a bit from seeing more of them on the, in the public market. I think more people would rather test the water with a private sale first and foremost. And Sophie, I know Rashid Johnson is a favorite of yours. Uh, there was, a, 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 I think, what, five, oh, four or five works that sold um, this past week. They all sold well. Uh, uh, and, and it's certainly, I don't know whether it's just, you know, matching the private market or, uh, you know, that there's actually an indicator here. I think it's matching the private market. I think that there's a lot of interest in his work, um, privately and, you know, continued demand as, as people just try to find one, um, outside the auction market. So, you know, I think they'll continue to come up for sale. They'll continue to be strong demand. I think, you know, his market is still definitely leveling, leveling itself out on the auction market, but, um, I don't, I wouldn't really call it an indicator. I think it's just interest across the board as, as we're seeing on the private side, uh, interest really hasn't waned, uh, since the spring. So it's kind of I, how I, I see it. I'd also, I'd also sort of play the other side of that too. And think as we see the kind of breakout prices, higher prices for this new, you know, the anxious men series and what was shown at Hauser Menorca this summer, you know, there's a reassessment of the first round of Rashid, right? The cosmic slops, the branded floors, the glass pieces, which all had a breakout sale moment. These were things which were featured in evening sales at one stage and then kind of drifted their way down. And I think as you get this price divergence, the kind of earlier work starts to feel undervalued. And I think we're clawing back some of that pricing that we actually lost a few years ago, you know, achieving almost $190,000 for a cosmic slop is not something you could have done for love or money, you know, three years ago. So I think there's, there's a reassessment of that first breakout body of work by the artist. And Christie's in, uh, in the freeze sales, I believe has, uh, a, 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 don't know what the work is, but it has a, a Johnson sort of prominently featured. So there's cl clearly activity taking place, uh, you know, uh, in the sort of as the beads are strung together in the sale season. Um, you had a question last week, George, about the Salmon Tours. And I was curious to hear your reaction to these sales. Is it... Uh, you know, change your opinion about where that market is at the moment? Yeah, I think I think that the the there's still demand, clearly, if you can sell a 2014 picture for four hundred thousand dollars, right? And that's not the kind of tour that we see in the Whitney. That's not the kind of tour that we see in the galleries. This is really somewhere just north of academic work in a lot of ways. Um so yeah, so I think that that solidifies that there truly is demand, you know. I of those pictures, I actually thought driver had made was kind of like the best one. It's the most subversive with the guy with the keys, but it has this kind of like biblical setting to it. Uh, and then the the last two names, which I think are both interesting uh, here. One is Jordy Kerwick, who 
it wasn't, you know, a lot of advancement, uh, but, you know, he sold a fair, fair amount of art at decent prices. Um, maybe, maybe he's more of a transition to markets that are uh, maintaining themselves. Uh, but I wondered if you guys had any, you know, thoughts about where where we are in the Jordy Kerwick story. I think there's a market correction going on uh, with his works because, I mean, Lot 28 of Phillips did pretty well with his signature iconography with the tiger head. But another lot um, is, you know, meh, like not really. So I guess Jordy Kerwick is on, you know, undergoing this um, period where his work is not as of high demand anymore because there's plenty to meet the demand. And um, it's to no surprise that those works are coming up at auctions. But I feel like those tigers even last year were performing much better or even in May sales. You know, so to me, that result was not surprising. But again, it's to me, it's more on a low and more on on decline. And Scott Kahn, three of the four works sold. So there's a little bit, you know, weakness, but they the the prices were all uh, good. Uh, It's it feels like this has been going on for a while. It's basically been a year now since the first one uh, uh, broke out. Um, in Hong Kong, I guess it was, you know, uh, a little bit later, but, you know, at the end of the uh, year, uh, is the same sort of thing, this mar- market kind of things are finding their place, or there's still a lot of demand that needs to be satisfied? I, I think we saw a lot of pictures come out privately. Um, but I think there still is demand. You know, I think there's also a more, a more established gallery coming into the picture, from what I hear. Um, so that should shore things up or put in a little bit of extra confidence in there. We obviously have the museum show next year. I, I tend to believe that this still remains like a more heavily Asia dominated market for the most part. Um, of the what of the works that were on offer, you know, the dog was kind of the toughest of the three and I'm not surprised that it didn't sell. I think there was a very similar dog, if not the same dog in the Almin Resh show um, this past May. So, you know, that, that one looked like a familiar face. I thought the old lime painting was really nice, you know, um, kind of moody. You know, of all three, all, all the pictures offered, they were all kind of moody for the most part. I, I tend to believe that the brighter colors, the more positive pictures probably perform a little stronger. I agree with George because I think with Scott Kahn, there is preferred iconography and there is like tougher pictures, like you said, George, like with a dog. But um, definitely like landscapes, um, portraits, they fall into two different categories of how the piece is going to perform at, at an auction. Yeah, there's a, that architectural element seems to do very well. Well, well, uh, just, you know, the, the buildings, right? The, the, some of the top pictures uh, of his are, you know, have some sort of a, a, a building in the landscape. Yeah, it kind of gives it a little bit of symmetry, especially, um, you know, the alcove painting is relatively similar to its top lot from Hong Kong. So um, I think for a market like this, it's also just like proving kind of like the tagline of the week, the week that like there's robust bidding, but it's not frenzied. Um, so like interest, but there's no like aggressive nature around this anymore. Um, which can feel refreshing. Yes, well, I, I mean, markets actually have to feel like they're orderly, and it, it can't. It gets exhausting, and if everything turns into uh, you thought you could get it for this, but you're going to have to pay, you know, five, six times uh, that price to get a hold of it. Speaking of which, um, 
Amoako Boafo seems to have surprising strength uh, in the art market. Uh, he sold, uh, I can't remember how many, uh, but, you know, several uh, pictures uh, this past week. And, you know, even though there had been some hiccups in his market early on, he, he seems to have real uh, persistence. Uh, I, I was wondering what you guys thought of both Boafo's, you know, uh, market in general and the performance of these uh, few works. I I thought overall that they, you know, the the Golden Frames one, which Sotheby's had, seemed to be the, the best of the week um, in that, in terms of quality. Um, and that, that did kind of what one would expect it to do, maybe a little less, maybe a year ago would have touched three, 300,000 or a bit more. Um, you know, the one that passed at Christie's, you know, kind of show, goes back to that kind of like, if it's a B, I don't know that you're going to sell it for an A price. And I think that was a, uh, a casualty, a casualty of that logic. Um, so, in, you know, I'll let, I'll let other, other panel members here speak to it, but I think, you know, we're seeing those private sale request prices start to come back down to earth too. Maybe some of the agreements to how, how strict resale clauses can be on these can start to shake up a little bit, you know, as, as things get a little sticky in places. I think also that African diaspora painters, um, you know, the overall they sold within the estimates uh, or slightly above or past like this uh, Boaf or Christie's. Um, like another artist that passed was Otis uh, Kwame Ki Kweko. Um, you know, like a good, relatively good piece, but it passed. And just two years ago, again, there was more or less a market frenzy surrounding this name. And then again, how, however, there were some great results from the contemporary artists of color, including Lynette Yadambuachi, Rashid Johnson, Glenn Ligon. And again, to remind the work by Sam Gilliam from 1970 was the second highest selling artist lot at Christie's. So I think there is still a strong market movement in that area. I, I, I think it feels like it's there they're not, we're not introducing new names, or at least in this cycle, we're not. I mean, uh, uh, Phillips had a whole alcove in their um, exhibition of African diaspora ar artists that are, were, were newer names, and I didn't see much uh, activity in those sales. And so, you know, Boafo is a good example. He, he now has a long market r r record. There's a lots of people involved in that uh, market, and it seems to be somewhat um, self-sustaining. And uh, everyone you described doing reasonably well are well-established artists. It just didn't look like this was a, a, a week to break out a new name. Yeah, we were watching that Phillips sale kind of concurrently, Marion, and had the same feeling when they hit that part of the sale. You know, those they had low estimates, but they were just hitting those estimates, like one bid, one bid. Um, the sale moved pretty quickly. So it was pretty indicative that there just wasn't a lot of appetite to make a market that day. Um, while the artists like Boafo, as you said, you had some staying power. But yeah, it was just, we moved very quickly through that that section of the sale um, at Phillips. So it was an interesting kind of new trend line to see. And what did you guys think about the two Christina Quarles um, paintings that sold? They sold for what should be considered high prices, you know, until the, this May, they would have been records for her. But now that there's this spectacular price, I think a lot of people saw these, you know, 600 and some odd thousand two sales at that level as uh, somewhat disappointing. I, I 
kind of sort of saw it the other way, having just seen uh, her House of Worth show, which I thought the, the works in that show were, you know, sort of head and shoulders above these kinds of works that are making $600,000. Uh, uh, and I do, there is another work coming up in um, London in a couple of weeks that I guess will give us sort of more of a sense if there's there's prices somewhere in between the 600 and 4.5 million. I mean, I think the this doesn't account for the exponential difference of the work that was sold in May, which was a lot fuller, you know, more busy, a busier work, full color, you know, just a really strong painting, but and also spectacular provenance too. Yeah, spectacular provenance and a bit and just significantly bigger, almost like four times the size, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of like 600 level all in seems to that, you know, in the 600s all in seems to be the the market price. You almost look at when going back to assess the market that the May picture at Sotheby's becomes a kind of like charity auction outlier, right? Like there is heavy bidding for unbeknownst reasons. They, you know, when looking at other sales, you might say, well, that's a charity auction lot. Like, so people were motivated for different reasons. Um at least in America, where you know you can do such things. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I don't know. I think that's always going to be the spike outlier when you look at like a live art graph on it, right? That's going to be the one that sticks way and truly far above the rest. And we will see otherwise this kind of gradual rise up into these you know mid six hundred numbers. Um, you know, will the new Hauser show in their sales techniques on rising dramatically rising the prices and you know barriers to entry affect that? That's well, I. I- I mean, the the I'm told that the works at Hauser are priced significantly higher than these auction works, and the question becomes, are they significantly better? And I mean, we could spend a lot of time arguing uh, uh, that point. It's a subjective uh, one until people actually start uh, trading uh, on them. But I think, I guess the point is, I thought those 600,000 prices were actually quite strong, and there's still a lot of sort of empty space to be colored in in the market. Totally. I think that's correct. Um, Anything else, guys, that you want to uh, uh, highlight? Was there anything that you saw, Arena, Sophie, that that sort of either changed your mind in one direction or the other about uh, an artist? I was um, excited to watch some of the queer artists perform, like um, Luis Fertino, just a confirmation that his market is still very high up. Um, Hugh Steers was a very interesting, I think it was a record auction, uh, the the record result. And then also Anthony Kurehi did really well uh, for the painting of that size. So I think it's just a nice little group that is doing really well. And I'm excited to watch them going forward. Yes, Sophie was paying a lot of attention to the Hugh Steers. Yeah, I'm excited about Hugh Steers as well. Um, Interesting to see, you know, Marion, I think you pointed out that there had been five that have come up between March and July at Sotheby's. And then this one had a little bit more prominence just because of, you know, the auction timing of year. But I think that that's an exciting market to watch. Um, I also love the the Sam Gilliam, you know, I think we touched on him, but, you know, good price, but also a nice little consigner flip as that was sold at Freeman's, um, I think about five years ago for 370,000. So uh, that's a nice little flip on that on that work for that consigner and you know it was a it was a great piece and it was a it was a good lot so that was a fun thing to see but yeah i i think hugh steers for me is the one that i'm watching closely and most interested in 
also just the way his works are very similar to Ernie Barnes and his figurative styles. Um, it'll be an interesting few years for him. I guess following up on what you were just saying about retrospectives, George, the Colescott retrospective hasn't had coattails. There were two Colescotts that were offered and, you know, they didn't do particularly well. And I know several people who were kind of disappointed uh, to see that, especially after the, you know, the big $15 million uh, uh, sale not too uh, long ago. Um, and so that that's almost a similar pattern to the Barnes mo- uh, uh, market uh, of, you know, Barnes in many ways has had broader coattails from his big sale in May than Colescott has. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? I mean, we, we touched on this earlier in the year as well in another podcast. Like Colescott was one of those markets that felt like they had support both commercially, academically to see something happen. But, you know, in reality, it kind of just ticked along in day sales until we had George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware, right? Like, which, which again, I think will just be this big outlier sale um, based on sort of a unicorn of a painting within a, a very good artist, you know, overall career. Um, you know, the painting at Christie's I thought was great compositionally. Is it a difficult picture to live with? Probably yes, for a lot of people. Um, do we feel maybe, I don't think oversaturated is the word. I, I just don't think the market is so educated enough to understand like why these are great pictures. You know, we, we as people who eat, eat, sleep and drink this, the, you know, our friends down at the auction houses who very much do the same, you know, they see it in a different light, but to, to have two weeks to educate somebody and teach them the scripture of Cole Scott, it's, it's a very limited run. And I don't, I don't think that the new museum itself should have to do all that heavy lifting. And I don't, I don't know that it's really happened. Closing point, right? That for all the talk about auction house hype, the truth of the matter is you can stand on the table and, and bang pots and pans all you like about an artist. If it's not resonating with a large enough group of people, it just can't uh, create a market. And so, yes, one really important painting can make a lot of money. And even a good museum show can tell people Cole Scott's an important artist. But if the, the world isn't feeling it, it's just not feeling it. And that may change in the future, but uh, it isn't going to change right now. Totally. You know, I go, go look at go look at an art dealer's collection versus a collector's collection, and you might find a lot of academic things in there. Come around my house and see the Seth Price market explained. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, any final thoughts, uh, Sophie, Arena, on, on the week or how you think about this in terms of the private market? Uh, you know, uh, what, what are you hearing from um, clients uh, after these sales? Um, some some of them were actually surprised that the Julie Mihreto drawings did pretty badly, just in terms of the two past, um, the two drawings passed, I think, when in Crazy yep. Simone Sotheby's. Um, so it shows a decline in demand. So that was sort of a talk that I had with a couple of people. Just, you know, even one was estimated at 20000 and no one bought it which was surprising to me. Sophie? Oh, I was just going to say, I think the biggest thing I've heard um, from just a bunch of different people is who is Wes Lang um, and kind of interest in his work and what's to come there, if there's more coming to market. But um, yeah, I just felt like I even needed to educate myself on on his market. I was just going to say, you want to tell us who is Wes Lang? 
Uh, no, not yet. I don't. West Lang, everyone, everyone, get on a plane and go to Denmark, and you will learn who West Lang is very quickly. He is he is big over there. I've even seen a museum exhibition of West Lang's West Lang's work there. Uh, V1 Gallery has done a terrific job of educating the local market on him, and they are big on it. Um, I just don't think the U.S. has seen or the global market, funnily enough, has seen what you know what he's all about, but. strongly followed um, on a local basis, if not covered by the talking heads of the art world. Um, So that was a really interesting sale. Great. Well, on that final note, thank you, George. Pleasure. Sophie, thank you. Thanks, Marion. And Arena, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence Podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week, and don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io.